Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pansler, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 3 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we focus on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. The theme of Season 3 is the road to Doha. We will be exploring issues relevant to the LDCs ahead of the 5th UN Conference on the Least Developed Countries in Doha, Qatar in 2022. Today, we're very happy to be speaking with Paul Klein, founder and president of Impact, a Toronto-based B Corp focusing on thought leadership, providing advisory services, and creating change for good. He's also the founder of the Impact Foundation for Social Change and author of the new book, Change for Good. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Esther. What a real pleasure to be here with you. Please tell us about your background. Where are you from? What did you study? And what led you to social impact? Well, that's a long story, and I'll try to make it fast. I'm from Toronto, and I guess ultimately led me to social impact was I grew up in a household where social justice and social change was a real priority. Um, my father was an architect who, among other things, specialized in social housing and recognized around the world for his work in that area. And my mother actually was the artistic director of a large folk music festival here. But not only that, she was, it wasn't just for her, it wasn't just the music, it was music about change a lot of the time. So music being a great way to communicate lots of things, in particular social issues and social change. So I kind of came from a place of a very combination of parents who made this real priority. And I had the good fortune of honestly of growing up because of them, surrounded by some remarkable people who were associated with my father's work, mother's work, and just being around a kind of ethos of social justice for a long time. But it took me a long time, honestly, to realize how important that was. I started to pursue a more conventional academic path here at the University of Toronto. I was studying English literature and it was all good. And then after that, I had a kind of awakening where I felt, because I had always been a musician as well, that I felt that I, I should change gears and go in that direction. So that led me to go move to Boston, actually, where I was at the Berklee College of Music and studying guitar, and which is still very close to my heart. That is fantastic, but I feel like it's only half the story because, and for our listeners who don't know, Berklee College of Music is one of the best music schools in the world. So I can't wait to hear you play guitar, Paul, because <laughs> you must be incredible. So how did you go from there to starting a foundation and a B Corp focused on social entrepreneurism? Well, I had no idea, as I was saying, I had no direction. I had, aside from like the, at some point I remember thinking, well, I'll just play in bands or something. And one of the things, as I said, though, my parents were a super incredible environment to grow up in, was not a big focus on being practical. Like there was never any discussion about, well, what are you going to do in your life or how are you going to make money or what happens if you have a family or that was not part of the equation at all. And maybe it was just part of me. I genuinely had not thought about it other than thinking somehow this is all going to work out. So as I said, after I, I moved back to Toronto, after I was at Berkeley, or did not get a degree at Berkeley actually, but I was there for two years because I wanted to just perform. And a lot of people go there for that purpose to dial up their ability and then perform. 
anyway. And that's what I was doing. And then just serendipitously, I knew someone who was in charge of marketing at the National Ballet of Canada. And she said, well, they were just starting. This was in the early 80s. They had started a marketing department for the first time at the National Ballet of Canada. And she said, would you like to come and work with me? And I really didn't know anything about marketing. I actually probably knew a little bit more about ballet than I did about marketing. But it sounded interesting. And so I thought, well, I'll do that. But I could also keep playing music on the side. I'll try this out. And it was really interesting, actually. And it was a very energized time to be there. And there were some really inspiring people there. And this organization, the National Ballet, was actually really accelerating in its popularity. We, I think, did some great things in spite of me not knowing what I was doing. We learned along the way and I was still playing music. And then eventually I couldn't continue to do both. You know, I couldn't be up that late and then be at work all day. So I actually stopped playing, focused on this. And then this started, again, a, a completely serendipitous path in working in arts administration. And where was just sort of connected a little bit to my experience and interest in arts and culture, actually, and music specifically. I worked at the National, and then I got a job at the Toronto Symphony, where I ultimately was the associate director of marketing and fundraising. And so that was good. It was there for a number of years. And I'll come back to that in a second. And then again, I don't mean to say none of this was planned in any way, but Bizarrely, I became the leader of Canada an organization called the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, which is an environmental organization, and then helped start a friend of mine who I knew from the Toronto Symphony named John Kimbell, is an Indigenous man, started something which is now called the National Aboriginal Achievement Awards. He wanted help getting this thing going. He wanted to put it on television. He wanted to, we needed to raise a crazy amount of money in a short period of time organize this whole thing, produce the event, get it on television. He asked me to help him. Sounded like something that was too good not to do. I did that. And then I was working at an agency that did what we called that social marketing, uh, which is really social change marketing. And that's when we were working for government smoking cessation campaigns. We were working for not-for-profit organizations. And we were just, and the, the work with large corporations was just starting in what we used to call corporate citizenship. So we, had, we were working with Hewlett Packard and Ericsson and Pfizer, and it was starting to come together. And I was something that I just felt really connected to. And then after being there for six years, I thought, well, I really liked the work, but I, I wasn't crazy about that particular working environment. So I quit my job. And started Impact, first working out of our house, and that was 20 years ago. It was in 2001. But the interesting thing is that for me, the light bulb of working in this space actually happened while I was at the Toronto Symphony. And it's a very crazy thing because there was an organization, it's called the American Symphony Orchestra League, and they have an annual conference. And while I was at the Toronto Symphony, the annual conference of this organization was in Chicago. And I went there and the keynote speaker was Ben Cohen from Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream. And that was probably in 1987 or 88. And I had never heard of Ben and Jerry's at the time. And this man gets up and starts talking about how businesses could have a social purpose and contribute to social change. And I had never heard that before. 
And it was just something I was, that was the light bulb moment. I was like, wow, that's what I would like to do. Even though I really knew almost nothing about business. In fact, I was kind of anti-business if anything. But while I was at the symphony, part of my job was getting corporate sponsors for the symphony. So that I heard Ben Cohen talk about that and just stayed with me. And then it took from probably 14 years or so from then to me starting Impact. But again, this was sort of happening in the background. I was interested in it. It was starting to bubble up in other ways. You had people like the body shop, in addition to Ben and Jerry's, who, who were doing this and connecting social change with business and other organizations. As I said, the work that we were doing for organizations like Hewlett Packard and Pfizer was really interesting. And then it, it was sort of all coming together to the point when I quit my job, in my mind, I was thinking, well, it's the perfect time to do this. But I was actually wrong. <laughs> Because uh, I thought in some ways it was the very beginning of this. And what I learned is you don't want to be the very first person in something. You want to get in a little bit after. You don't want to be the earliest adopter. But it was what it was. And there was fairly lean times at the beginning. But I just kept going. So there are so many things I love about the story, Paul. I mean, the fact that you studied music, the fact that you're a musician, the fact that you made your way through this, you know, circuitous path to where you are to founding impact which for our listeners is I-N-P-A-K-T, but also the fact that you were an early adopter, right? That you were driven by your convictions at the beginning of this process, not now when it's very easy to join what everybody else is doing and it's inevitable and it looks like it will succeed. But in the beginning, when nobody was talking about this, I'm sure so many people told you you were crazy or it wouldn't work or whatever. And that's what happens to pioneers because you're ahead of the curve. And so you've actually helped lay the groundwork and build the field for everybody else. So. Thank you very much. You only know what you know, right? One of the things that, that turned out to be over a long period of time turned out to be really good about starting early is, as I said, I was, I was working here out of our house. I had a lot of time, not too many clients and a lot of time. And someone who I really respect said to me, well, you should be writing about what you do. You should be writing about this area. And as I said, I had a lot of time. I thought, well, okay, I'll try and do that. And so I did start to write about this stuff and I found out that I really liked doing that. And it was a great way for me to help. It was a great way for me to help myself understand what it was all about and also perhaps communicate to others. And so I started writing and ultimately was writing for a lot of different publications like Forbes and other business magazines and, and still do. And over a long period of time, that was just important to me personally, and, and I hope contributed to the way other people understand as well. So in the UN, you hear a lot of these catchphrases, and two of them are thought leadership and enabling environment. And I think this is a perfect example of both thought leadership, that you put ideas out into the ether and in the space before other people are thinking about them. So you lead people to the ideas that are new and exciting. And then enabling environment in the sense that you are helping to build the infrastructure, intellectual and pragmatic, needed for this field to grow. So we talk about it, you and CDF in poor countries, but you did it in Canada, right? That you've helped build the impact investing space and the idea of social entrepreneurism in Canada, which is very, very exciting. When you set up Impact, Paul, why did you do it as both a for-profit B Corp and a foundation? Well, the foundation part came later. At the beginning, it was actually even before B Corps existed, honestly. So it wasn't a B Corp at the beginning. I can't remember when that came in. 
but originally started just as a business. And then when the B Corp movement became important, it seemed as part of the DNA or ethos of what, what we we're trying to do at Impact, it was important to be a B Corp. So it became a B Corp and remain very proud of that. And I think it's something that it really continues to influence how we do the work that we do. And it's just so synonymous with what our idea is of impact, which is helping businesses to benefit from solving social problems. And I think the B Corp world is really the, exactly the same, environmental and social problems in this case. So that was in place. And we ultimately created the Impact Foundation for Social Change, which is a charitable organization just two years ago. And that came from the mistakes that I made in bringing in social change programs directly to impact. So I'll explain that. So we had at impact, of course, worked for many years, working with mostly large corporations and helping to develop social change programs for large companies like Starbucks and here in Canada. Petro Canada, Home Depot, and lots of companies, 3M. And while we were working actually with Home Depot here in Canada and helping them with their social programming around youth homelessness, but did it in a way where they actually made a commitment to help end youth homelessness, which was a very bold move at the time. And not many companies were actually committing to solving problems. Instead, they were committing to supporting change rather than committing to solving things. Anyway, out of that work with Home Depot, we had recognized that one of the reasons that uh, youth are homeless is they're not employed. And there's a vicious circle there. You got a youth who's unemployed, there's nothing in their resume, they can't get employed, that perpetuates it. They're homeless and criminal activity and all kinds of things. And we thought, imagine if we could create a mechanism, a platform to connect youth who've experienced homelessness that were ready to be employed with entry-level employment at large corporations. That ended up in us creating something called Higher Up, which was the first platform, I believe, in the world to connect youth in this precarious position with entry-level employment. And we got companies, Home Depot was employing people, Walmart and all kinds of large corporations, Nordstrom. And we had, without really thinking about it or understanding what we were doing, Impact, that was a consulting company, was now also a directly creating social change. And that did not work financially <laughs> because we were financing the social change work we were doing out of cash flow of Impact. But we, we were in it to the point where we couldn't stop. It was already going. And um, we were also stuck in the situation where we couldn't get charitable donations to support this because partly it was a charitable activity because we were not at a charity. And we couldn't get investors in this because it didn't quite qualify in that respect either because we weren't structured as a company. We were a consulting company. We were not a company that was structured to take people's investments and then exit from those investments and so on. So this whole situation with higher up led to a lot of experimentation, honestly. At first we started a not charitable, but a nonprofit corporation and that worked for a while, but then it didn't work because organizations that could have provided us charitable contributions need us to be a charity. Couldn't do that. Of course, being a nonprofit, we, we couldn't create an investment structure either. So we did get some funding. So that didn't work. Then we decided to start a new 
we thought, well, this could be a corporation. We'll set it up like a social enterprise that people could invest. Turned out that after a time, we hired someone to lead that and created a whole team. Actually got a fair amount of funding from the federal government here. We created a whole new tech platform. But then we could not prove a good enough business case. So we couldn't get investors for that either. Ultimately, we ended up gifting that whole platform higher up to a charitable organization called Raising the Roof. But out of all this, we realized that we still wanted to be doing social change programs. We wanted to be doing, providing the advisory services and consulting that we were all doing. And I met with someone here in Toronto named Mark Bloomberg, who's a lawyer and authority on how to structure organizations for the purpose of social change. I told him about this. I said, we've got Impact. We've got this not-for-profit organization that still existed. We called Impact Labs. And he said, oh, it's easy. You need to have a charity too. And I was like, oh my God, you're telling me now we need to start a charitable organization, which is honestly the last thing I had want, thought about doing or wanted to do. We ended up doing it. And you know what? It was the right decision. It's actually been really great. That's so interesting, Paul. Thank you so much for walking us through this very complex issue of how do you structure your organization if you want to achieve good at the intersection of charitable giving and investment. We know it's not easy. And we know at the United Nations that there's a very fine line between how you use grant money to seed investments and then how you attract commercial money. It has to be packaged in a different way. It has to be sold in a different way. There are very strict rules about what type of money you can use for what purpose. I think it's also fantastic that you've been an entrepreneur. You are an entrepreneur and you've built a successful business, which is quite different from many of the advisors in this space who have never themselves taken on the risk or the responsibility or the headaches of building a business themselves, but they give a lot of advice to entrepreneurs. So I think we can establish that you are doubly an authority in this field. Well, well, I, you know, again, it happened in a way that was out of necessity rather than an intention, but that's how entrepreneurs work. And one of the things that I believe in the social change world is there needs to be a lot more entrepreneurialism and not just entrepreneurs themselves, but entrepreneurial thinking in large organizations and corporations as well. But one of the things that I think is unusual about impact as it's turned out is by having the work that we do in the consulting space with impact as the B Corp and having the charitable foundation impact foundation for social change is, you know, when we're speaking with corporations, we can talk about social change in a way that has great credibility because we're actually doing that as well. And I don't think I mentioned that the mission of the, um, Impact Foundation for Social Change is to create pathways to employment for vulnerable people. So we are doing that. And our experience in creating things like Higher Up and the other work that we've done since then on the foundation side has greatly influenced, I think, not just how we're seeing, but how, how we ourselves are thinking about what we're doing in this space in a way that I don't think would have ever happened if we hadn't gone through all that. And the other thing which has been very helpful is because of the depth of experience that we've had in the corporate sector, it actually helps on the foundation as well. Some of the organizations, some of the corporations that we've had the good fortune of supporting have contributed to the Impact Foundation. We started the foundation with already a fair amount of profile in the space. So not like anything's easy, but it's been easier than if one had just started a foundation, a charity from ground zero. It wasn't at ground zero. It was like coming into 
a social change space at a particular level to start with made it a bit easier, you know, and it made it in terms of getting results, made it much faster. Absolutely. And what a fantastic way to combine theory and practice, right? That you are pushing the boundaries of what the thought leadership is or the expert thinking is in this space, but you're also implementing directly. So you can immediately test your theories and you have more real world experience to draw from than most kind of advisors or consultants. So what an exciting model. So please tell us about your new book, Change for Good. Change for good. Yes. Hot off the press, sort of. It's it's going to be out March 15th, but it's already available for pre-sale. So change for good, the idea of change for good actually started before COVID. And it came out of just an ongoing experience that I'd had working with corporations in this space and thinking about how to connect business and social change and trying to understand some of the things that were not working as well as I thought they should have. And Change for Good is built around a problem, which is that what we find is that mostly corporations are doing as little as is possible to be seen to do something good, if that makes sense. And so it's something I started calling CSR light. And so you see these organizations who they know they have to do something because you can't be, you're sort of conspicuous by your absence. So if you need to be seen to be involved in the community, supporting social issues, environmental things, obviously, and so on. But there's also in the corporate sector, very often a risk in being, in doing too much or a perceived risk in doing too much. And we don't want to go too far. Like we don't actually be doing something like Home Depot had the courage of doing years ago is actually committing to solving a problem. What happens if that doesn't work or we're going to be seen to we don't have the expertise in doing that. We don't have enough money to do that or many other reasons. What happens if we're somehow we could have some reputational damage for trying actually to do a good thing. So what I had observed over a long time is corporations that were sort of stuck in this twilight zone of doing, wanting to be seen to do something, but really not wanting to do too much. And I started thinking about that as CSR light. And so that's where the idea of the book came from. And the idea of change for good is about how businesses that are stuck in that place can shift from the place of being doing ineffectual CSR, ineffectual from business and social change point of view, to really making social change, contributing to solving social problems, problems that have identified as, priori as SDG priorities, doing that in a way which is also beneficial for them. So that was the idea of it. And I had spoken to a few publishers before COVID and ultimately found someone that wanted to work with me on this project. But the whole thing actually didn't get started until the middle of COVID, which was good because I was going to the office. So I had more time to work on this here than I probably would have otherwise. That's how it came to be. Yet another thing to respect about you, Paul, that while the rest of us spent a year sitting around in our sweatpants, looking at our computers, you use the time to write a book. So <laughs> well done. Well, I'll tell you one quick story about that also, because that got this contract with the publisher, it was called ECW Press. It was last September and I had to have the manuscript done by the end of March, this past March. And so I thought, well, I'll just start taking every Friday off and I'll write all day long every Friday. So I started this in September and by 
the end of November about, I had taken every Friday off. I had written nothing. <laughs> it was not working. And uh, so uh, this woman who's on our board of the Impact Foundation, actually, I told her the story. She said, I was never going to work. She's actually finished her PhD. She's doing a lot of writing. And she said, what you have to do is you have to start writing a little bit every single day. And the very next day after she told me that, I started with this different program, gave up the Fridays. It ended up with actually more than a little bit because I was nervous at that point about how to possibly get this done. So I was writing from, I wrote from 5.30 to 8.30 in the morning, basically every day except one day until the end of March. That's very impressive. <laughs> Stephen King writes this in his book on writing. Stephen King says, it's not rocket science, just do it. And his advice for writers is a thousand words a day. And he's a thousand words a day, 300 days, you're done with your book, right? And he's after that, go play basketball, have lunch with your kids, just do a thousand words a day. It doesn't matter if they're good or not, just do it. And the practice of doing it gets you into the, the habit and then it's done over time. Totally. And I, I'm a fairly obsessive person. So once I started to realize that it just became about the numbers and then I had an Excel chart going day and I was thinking, okay, well today, maybe I only got 500 words, not good enough. Tomorrow I've got to do whatever it is to, to reach it for the average from that time I started to when it be done. And that was helpful for me. It's quite an accomplishment. I mean, writing a book is like running a marathon or losing a lot of weight. It's one of those things where you're rewarded by small effort over time. Right. Mm. And what's so hard for so many people is they don't have the discipline to keep up the small effort over time. They think it will be two or three big Fridays. You go out and run 20 miles and then you collapse. But it's actually a little bit a day over a long period of time. And that's very hard to do. So congratulations. Well, thank you. And I actually had known this. My only other experience, which I had forgotten about, honestly, was in music. Same thing if you want to learn instrument. It's the same thing. And I've told people for years, it's better if people start to play piano or something. Well, I'm going to practice two hours a day. I'm going to practice two hours a day. Never going to happen. I always say 15 minutes. If someone did 15 minutes every single day, you get a lot farther because you're never going to keep up for two hours. And I'm going to tell my son that for his violin, which I don't think he's touched in about six months. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I have to start thinking it up here. 15 minutes. You know. Exactly. Uh, um, anyway, I still play guitar 15 minutes every morning. Actually. That's so fantastic. And I'm sure it helps with everything else, right? Like you're unleashing your creativity. It's relaxing. It's using a skill that you've developed over time. I'm sure it's just wonderful. Well, you know, and I think that we're in a space here, both of us and everyone who's in the social change space, and whether you're in a corporation or whether you're doing social finance or consulting or anything, we're still largely in a situation where we're inventing as we go. I think you have to understand business, you have to understand social issues, but I believe you also have to bring a high degree of creativity and innovation to what you're doing. One of the things that I learned from you, actually, that I always think about, which I hadn't thought about before, is things people tend to look at things in quite binary ways, I find. And you taught me about the whole world of blended finance. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm glad that I was the venue by which you could find out about this all because you've done some so many fantastic things uh, in your sphere. So I completely agree with you with the creativity. I find that a lot of the people, and not just because my degree is in theater directing, but I do find that people with non-traditional career paths, especially in business, you know, you have the people who've done the NBA, they've been taught to think in a certain way. 
But if you're coming from a different path, you see problems differently. You've had different experiences. You call on different contacts, paths, influences. And so the way you look at the issue is different. And that's a diversity that I think people miss is there. They're looking at the color of the person or their racial background or their gender, but they're not looking at how does this person think? How do they view problems? What is their approach to solving things? What are the inputs that have shaped how they see the world? And those elements of diversity are equally important because otherwise you have a bunch of people who are from different racial backgrounds who all approach the same problem the same way. And then you come up with the same solution. Well, what you just said reminded me of another thing, which is so important in our work and to me personally, and is really another sort of a common denominator throughout this book, Change for Good, is the importance of involving people with lived experience in designing social change programs. As I say, nothing about them without them. So this is something which is from the direction that we come from, which is the large business sector helping to create social change programs for large corporations virtually never done. And that's another realization that I had because we know that the most successful social change programs happen when people with lived experience are involved in designing, implementing, and measuring the effectiveness of those programs. I'm sure you see this in your work. However, in the corporate sector, it's just not done, almost never. So maybe that's one of the reasons why some of those corporate programs are so successful. And including the ones that we've done, we're guilty of that too. Our kind of awakening in this space was when we were developing that program I was telling you about before higher up, and we had this realization, oh my God, we're now trying to create a program to address the needs of youth who experience homelessness and get them employed. We've never not been employed. We haven't experienced homelessness. We are creating these interventions that hopefully will impact people's lives. But this is a whole different level. And so we thought that the only thing that would seem responsible was to bring someone in the team who had experienced homelessness, had experienced what we were trying to do. And it was one of the most remarkable experiences I've ever had. And we ended up into the organization Covenant House. There was a, a young man who was living at Covenant House and then was referred to us and still homeless. He was living with them. He didn't have another home. And he came to work with our team of fairly educated people. He had no, I think he had, maybe he had finished high school. I can't even remember. But I'll tell you one thing, whether I interviewed him to start with, I always ask people who we want to work with or want to work with us. Uh, what One of the questions I always ask is, if there's one thing that you could do that you know 100% that above anything else you could nail, that you could do incredibly well, what would that be? And very often people would be like, business school graduates and lots of people will say things like Excel or something, you know, <laughs> and uh, seriously, but this person said chess and I thought, oh my God. And he started talking about all these chess tournaments he'd won and so on. I thought this is an incredibly smart person and a strategic person. So we hired him. his name is Cameron and Cameron was an absolute joy to work with. We learned so much from him. And what we created with higher up just simply would never have been what it was without him. And so that's when I, the coin dropped for me about realizing how important this is. And so ever since then, we have been in the work we've done with large businesses, bringing people with lived experience directly into the process of designing those programs. And that has meant sometimes people with, from large corporations going to frontline agencies to meet with people. 
having conversations and vice versa too, bringing people with lived experience into the business context. And just at, at a personal level, it's an incredibly rewarding experience, I think, for everyone involved. And this work is extremely difficult in any way, but I think it's made it better. That's wonderful to hear, Paul. Not only that you recognize the need for this, it development, of course, this is a prevalent problem where so many of the times the development program is designed to meet the needs of the donor and not the beneficiary. Nobody ever asked the beneficiary the the gift or the program or the intervention is just dropped into their environment and presented to them without anybody asking them what they need or what they want, but also that it requires humility, right? It requires the giver or the person who nominally is in the position of power to recognize that they don't know everything that there's something they can learn and that the people they are trying to help have their own needs, desires, authenticity, and that their needs are as valid as the goals and priorities of the giver. So it's a really fascinating and I think necessary approach to this type of work. And I'm happy that you guys have implemented it in your own work. That's a fantastic example. This is something that as you said, in the development world, this has been practiced hopefully well for a long time. But beyond that, there's been very low awareness of how important this is. When we started the Impact Foundation, actually, we were looking for an executive director. The Impact Foundation's work, as I said, is, is creating pathways to employment for vulnerable people. And we had, the board had put a priority on employment for refugees and newcomers. And so I really felt it was important to have someone with that experience as the executive director, we ended up hiring a wonderful person, Martina Andiri, who came to Canada as a refugee from Nigeria, is now the executive director of the Impact Foundation for Social Change, and is doing an incredible job and is a wonderful person. And I, I just see that the way she speaks to people about the work of the foundation and the way people listen to her. And if I was in that role, I could never do that, would not listen in the same way. That's an amazing story. And I think the world was watched as Canada very, very generously and in an amazingly open-hearted way welcomed thousands of refugees during the Syrian refugee crisis and afterwards. It certainly was an amazing example for your southern neighbor and other countries around the world. But I think also one of the things that we realize in this space that for people who have traditionally been shut out of decision-making seats or power... If you are lucky enough to be in that seat, one of your roles is to open the door and bring more people to the table, right? That's one of our obligations as people who have been lucky enough or privileged enough to have that opportunity, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first generation. But then your role then is to bring other able people to that position so that they can speak for themselves and also change the way decisions are made. Absolutely. And so that's one of the things that I hope when I think about Change for Good, this book, I really hope that tried to do this, tried to write Change for Good in a way that would inspire more people to do just that. Wonderful. So Paul, you've followed this field for a long time. I'm going to ask you your own question, which is also a question we ask a lot here on the podcast. If there was one thing you could do to accelerate the progress for social entrepreneurs and the cooperation between business and the goal of achieving social change, what would it be? Well, that's not a fair question. I'm waiting a while to answer that question. No one's ever asked me. Um, but I think if you just do one thing, I think it's really what we were just talking about, which is I would advise corporations to be listening to, involving, listening to people with lived experience of the issues they're trying to solve. And because it's like if you're in a 
large corporation, business of any size. So you've got a, an IT problem. It's unlikely you're going to turn to a person who has experienced homelessness to solve that problem, right? But these same businesses who decide they want to support homelessness will have no problem privileged people, highly educated people sitting in their boardroom deciding how they're going to do that. So that to me just doesn't seem right. So I think that all has to start there. There's a lot of things, but I feel like if you're not starting from a place of truly understanding what the issue is, then that's not going to work because I also believe that today, in terms of driving business value from these kinds of programs, it's not CSR-like. Nobody cares about that. There's such a ubiquitous and largely meaningless bunch of activities that are happening in the world's largest corporations in this area. So the value today is actually moving the needle on issues that matter. And those are the easiest way to think about that. Those issues are the SDGs and the most effective way of addressing those issues and getting business value from that is involving people with experience, actually committing to moving the needle on them. And as a part of doing this, if you do it that way, being seen to be actually authentic and committed and being leaders. That's what will drive business value from whether that's your employees looking at you differently, or your customers or the investment community. It's all based on not just talking about stuff, but actually doing it and committing change for good. Wonderful. Thank you, Paul, for being such a leader in this area and a pioneer in so many ways. I hope people read the book, Change for Good, and that even more people are inspired by your example, as we here at UNCDF have been. Thank you, Esther. Listen, I'm inspired by you too. It works both ways. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our audience also for joining us on UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org. If you found this episode useful, please spread the word on Twitter, hashtag Capital Musings, or leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews help new listeners discover our podcast. So if you enjoyed listening, please leave a review. Thanks, and until next time.